morning, and thank you all so much for being here. Appreciate the presence of each and every one and your desire to be here as we worship our God together. If you will, open your Bibles with me to the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, and we'll be in the book of Habakkuk in chapter 2 here today. As we continue on in this series of lessons, we started here a couple of months ago when I first came to uh, work with you all and, and do some lessons here with you. Uh, we began this series called Finding Calm in the Chaos. And what we mean is that when the world is beating down around us, when things seem <clears throat> like they're out of control, how do we find calm? How do we find that peace that surpasses all understanding? How do we find a place where we can collect ourselves, where we can see the outcome, that we can calm our hearts and calm our minds and get to a place where we can weather the storm. One of the quotes that I've shared with you is my favorite as I think about difficult times from Homer Haley is that God doesn't save us from the storms, rather he saves us through the storms. That it's these storms we go through and trials we go through in life or what refine us or what make us better or what help us to be what we ought to be. And so we began this series of lessons first uh, the first lesson we looked at was the faith paradox. And the faith paradox, as we looked at, was the idea that we can never lose sight of the fact that in the end we will win with the fact that we are facing a very brutal reality. So what really that paradox is, is that even though today we may be in the middle of a storm, we can't lose sight that in the end we're going to overcome. In the end it's all going to be okay but today there's some bad things that are happening. There's some brutal facts that we have to deal with. And we have to embrace those facts. We have to look at them and take them head on. But we can't lose sight of the fact that we will overcome. And we talked about the fact that we can't set arbitrary deadlines. As if, you know, will this all be better in a week? Or it'll all be better in a month? Or it'll all be better in six months? Because we don't know. When you're dealing with death, when you're dealing with loss, when you're dealing with heartache, there is no magic timetable that says you should just feel better. It takes what it takes. And sometimes the hurt never really goes away. It just lessens in intensity. That you may feel pain, you may feel lost for the rest of your life based on the circumstances that you go through. That doesn't mean it won't get better. That doesn't mean it won't be better in the end. But it does mean that we have to face the facts of what is going on. The second lesson that we looked at was that God has mysterious ways. What that means is, and what we looked at through that series of lessons, was the fact that we don't always understand why any of this stuff happens. And we don't always understand how God is going to fix it or what good is going to come of it. Because we just don't know. That's one of the harder things, I think, for many of us to get our mind around, is the fact that we want to know. I want to know everything. God, I want to know how this is going to work and why it's happening. And we've got to get rid of that foolishness, friends. We've got to understand that God's ways are higher than our ways and God has a plan, especially when we don't understand it. Submission is not about agreement. That's what we think, right? I'm happy to acquiesce and I'm happy to submit as long as I agree with the entire plan. Submission is when we say, God, I don't get it, but you do, and it'll be okay. I don't have to because you're God and I'm me and that's okay 
And we've got to know that God works in ways that are higher than man's ways. The third lesson we looked at was the fact that sometimes the best way to find calm is to just stop, look, and listen. To stop our own anxiety and stop our own fear, calm our own hearts, look around at what God has already done for us, and listen to what God's doing. Now that takes a lot of self-control on our part. It takes some meditation. It takes some prayer. We talked about journaling those prayers and writing down the fact of what we've been praying for and the situations in our lives so that we can look back and see all the good that God's done and to give him the credit for that and praise him for the good that he's done with our, in our lives knowing that God is still good and God is still in control and these things will get better because God's always taking care of me. But sometimes I lose sight of that when I get caught up in the storm and I forget about all the days of shelter that I've always had. And I forget about every time that I've been in trouble and every time I've faced anxiety and every time I've faced calamity that it's God who got me through. Sometimes we just need to stop, look, and listen. And then the fourth lesson, the last lesson we looked at was about the judged and the just. About the fact that it's not up to us for vengeance. It's not up to us to make things right. It's not up to us to make sure that others pay the penalties for the sins that they commit. That is not our side of the stick. Our responsibility is to be faithful unto death and let God take care of that. Because first and foremost, friends, there ain't nothing that you and I can do to anybody that's worse than what God can do to make it right. Secondly, we, always, we don't always have all the facts, do we? We jump to a lot of conclusions, don't we? We think we know why somebody does something, but we may have no idea what's going on. But understand, God's got all the facts. And the judgments that happen on Judgment Day, the judgments that happen at the end of our life will be just because they're in the hands of a merciful, gracious, loving Heavenly Father that will make all the right decisions. Then I don't have to worry about that because that's not my responsibility. Today, what we want to turn our attention to is that in the midst of this very difficult news that's going on, in the midst of, remember the story of Habakkuk, for those of you that haven't been here for these few lessons, I'm not going to re-preach all the other ones. But understand what's going on in Habakkuk is the prophet Habakkuk sees the degradation of society. And he looks around and he says, all these people are being wicked, God, and they're getting away with it. How long are you going to let this happen? And God says, well, just a little bit longer, and then I'm going to bring in the punishing people. And Habakkuk says, whoa, 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 God, now hold on. You're good. How are you going to punish your people with these evil people, these Babylonians? Nebuchadnezzar and his boys. God, you can't. You're a good God. How can you use those people? And God says, I can use what I use. And I'm rising up the people that are the best at punishing to come and execute judgment. And Habakkuk is trying to deal with this idea that God can use people, regardless of whether they are godly, to be able to accomplish his will. But that's the God that we serve. God doesn't need complicity. He'll use you however you are to accomplish his goals. You can either be on board or you cannot be on board. But God will use you to accomplish his will even without complicity. So in the midst of these bad, terrible things that are happening. When Habakkuk's trying to wrap his mind around a good God using evil people to accomplish his will. Even in the midst of all of this. There are positive things that we've got to have our mind around. 
There are positive things that God points to that we've got to focus on for us to get through very difficult circumstances. And I think sometimes in our lives what happens is we focus so much on the negative that we don't ever see the positive, right? Especially when that negative noise is turned up loud. And we get this idea that all people everywhere are bad and all society is terrible. But you and I both know about stories and about situations of good people that are doing good things. But they don't get the press. They don't get the headlines. But we know people today in our communities, in our lives, that are showing love, that are showing hospitality, that are showing benevolence, that are reaching out and helping those that are hurting. But see, we forget about those and we forget about all that because the noise of the bad is turned up too loud. Sometimes, again, what we've got to do is take a step back and focus on positive things to get us through difficult times. I'm going to read kind of a lengthy section here in the back. We're going to start in verse 4 and read down through verse 20. It's a lot of verses, but I want you to read with me, and I want you to listen to two very important things. One, I want you to hear all the bad, and that usually isn't hard, right? It's easier to hear the bad. But secondly... I want you to, in the middle of the bad, I want you to try to focus in on the good that God is talking about. That he, even in all the bad things that God's getting ready to say about what's going on, that there is some good. And I want you to kind of listen for that. So tune your ear for that. Starting in verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is wide as Sheol, like death. He has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects all his own people. Shall not all those take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of men and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your own wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and the violence of the earth to the cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol? When its maker is shaped in a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in its own creation. When he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says a wooden thing awake to a silent stone arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So there's a lot there, right? 
There's a lot that he talks about, a lot of iniquity, a lot of terrible things that both the nation of, uh, of Nebuchadnezzar and, and those that are with him, the nation of Babylon, that they are coming in. It talks about their iniquity. But I want us to listen closely to a couple of things that he says. One, in verse 4, he says that faith is the key to overcome. Now, verse 4, I think we've quoted in almost all of these lessons. <clears throat> that we focus in on the fact that the righteous shall live by faith. That yes, there are these unrighteous and their souls puffed up and they're full of themselves. But understand that the righteous will live by faith. Now what exactly does that mean? How do the righteous live by faith? How do the righteous develop enough faith that they can live and they can survive this? Well, I always think about faith this way. I, I think of faith like a big barrel that we fill up. And the way I think about that is, is that that barrel that we have that's full of our faith has a little hole in the bottom of it. And we go and we dump faith in there and we accumulate faith every time we read the scriptures, when we meet together in fellowship, when we show hospitality, all the things that build us up and encourage it go in. And that's our input into the barrel. But on the other side, there's a hole in the bottom of that barrel and that hole is just daily life. And daily life sucks some faith out every day. Sometimes that hole's a little bit bigger than others, and other times it's just a small amount. But I think about that barrel of faith, and, and some of us keep that barrel of faith with us all the time, because we never know when we're going to have to get in and take a drink. But others of us have put that barrel of faith in the garage somewhere, and we've neglected it. And I think about it like this, oftentimes, especially when I go to fix something at the house, I go out in the garage and I look for a tool. And that tool should be in a certain toolbox or in a certain bucket. It should be somewhere. And every time I go out and I reach in that toolbox and that tool's not there, I get mad. And I usually end up throwing that toolbox across the garage. Now, it's not the toolbox's fault. It's my fault. I didn't put it back where it was supposed to go, right? But I blame the toolbox. And that's what we do sometimes when we go to our faith, isn't it? We go out there to the garage and we knock the dust off of the barrel of faith and we wonder why it's empty. And we blame the barrel. Or we blame the inputs to the barrel. We blame the church. We blame God. We blame fellowship. <clears throat> we look around at all the reasons why our barrel is empty instead of understanding that the reason why is because I stopped filling it up. And I look down at the ground and I see where my faith has leaked all over the ground. Because I stopped filling that barrel up. I stopped doing the things necessary to keep my faith where it should be. And when I needed to take the top of that barrel off and give me a big old dose of faith, because hard things just happened in life, there wasn't any there for me. Because I stopped doing the things necessary to keep my faith where it ought to be. And friends, that's the first lesson of positive things that we have to understand is we always have to be working on our faith. Always, every day. It's not good enough to just come to church. It's not good enough just to come here. It's not good enough just to show up. You've got to come and you've got to drink because you've got to take that back home and put it in the faith bucket. You've got to come and you've got to soak up all you can 
because you're going to need to fill that up. So if you just show up, then you don't take anything in. If you just show up and you play on your phone and you're worried about what's happening for lunch or you're worried about where somebody's sitting or how somebody else is dressed or how bad the preaching is, if you're focused on all those other things, you ain't going to get anything today. And when it's time to go back to that faith bucket and pour something in, well, you didn't take anything in to pour it in. But here's the other thing. If you just come on Sundays, you don't come back Sunday nights, you don't come back Wednesday nights, you got runoff all week, don't you? Because Monday's going to come and take a little faith. And Tuesday's going to come and take a little faith. Wednesday's going to come and take a little faith. And Thursday and Friday and Saturday. And so if you're waiting all week to get back, to get some more, that's a problem. Your faith's running out faster than you're putting it in. But what if all you do is come? And you come Sunday morning, you come Sunday night, and you come Wednesday night, is that enough? Nope. Because you got three days worth of fill and four days worth of runoff. Ain't got to be great at math to know that that don't work, is it? You've got to spend time every day in the Word. You've got to spend time every day praying. You've got to spend every time every day with God's people. You've got to spend time every day taking in as much as you can. Because you're going to have days that come where you're not putting in, you're having to take out. Not only that hole in the bottom of your bucket, but you're going to have to come take a big drink out of the top. And if there's nothing there, you don't have anything to drink from. And if we're not constantly working on what we need to do to be able to overcome, it's just like when I go to the garage looking for that wrench. If it ain't there, I ain't fixing the problem. We got to make sure that our tools are ready for us when we need them. And we got to make sure that the relationships that we build every day are ready for us when we need them. You know what that means? That means it can't be the first time you use the wrench, is it? Anybody ever done that? You got a new tool and you got a project? If you're anything like me, it takes me a while to figure out how that tool works, right? I get a new drill, I get a new press, I get a new wrench. There's some different, it's different because it's not like all the other tools I've always had. This tool's new, so I got to figure out how it works first before I can use it, right? That's the way our relationships work with each other, too. You got to start with small things. You got to start with figuring them out. You got to start letting other people into your life. And you got to start sharing your life with other people so that when it comes time to make that call and say, I don't know what I'm doing, I need some help, you've already got a foundation. You know how that's going to work. You know how the help's going to come. You know whether you need to call or text or show up. You know who you need to call that's going to be there for you and who isn't. Because, friends, here's the truth. Not all relationships are built the same. And not all of us have all the connections with each other that we want. We're a family, absolutely. We are the family of God. The church here is the family of God here, but just like every other family, you're a little closer to some family members than you are others, aren't you? And you've got people that you can lean on, rely on, and there's other people that you just can't. 
Because here's the truth. This family is just like every other family that you all are in. Some of us are more messed up than others. And some of us can't help because we're a wreck. Others of us are strong enough to carry our own load and have a little room for another load. But you've got to figure that out. And you've got to spend time knowing who can carry and who can't. And you know what? When you spend time finding out who, car- who can carry and who can't, you may find out that today you can help them carry because six months from now they may be in a position to carry. Galatians says we've got to bear our own burdens. And then in the same verse it says we've got to bear the burdens of one another. I find that fascinating every time I read that verse. You know why? Because there's a time to carry and there's a time to be carried. There's a time in our life where we're strong enough and everything's good and we can carry. But friends, if we're not carrying for others, ain't going to be nobody there to carry for us. We've got to start today. And we've got to start looking around and making sure we're filling up that toolbox and we're filling up that barrel full of faith because the way we find the calm and the chaos is that we've got the provisions. We just had some winter storms blow through. Right? And one of the things that always makes me laugh about every winter storm that blows through is do not try to go to the grocery store the night before the storm. You know what you're going to find? Nothing. No, you're going to find some Brussels sprouts and asparagus and everything that nobody else wants to eat. But don't go in there for some milk and bread because that's gone, been gone. Right? Because what happens is people prepare for the storm and if they're going to be snowed in for three or four days, you've got to have all the groceries and stuff you need for those three or four days. But the smart people, what they do? They got them early. And so when I try to show up late, I try to go in there when the snow's already started falling, I'm not going to find anything. It's the same thing in life, friends. But what we've got to know is we don't have to wait on the weatherman to forecast. I know a storm's coming. I just don't know when. So the better thing is to make sure the pantry stays stocked. That way when that wind blows in, I'm ready. The positive things that we can do is understand that faith is the most vital part of being able to overcome anything. Faith is the most important thing. And we've got to keep the most important thing the most important thing all the time. We get to these goofy parts in our spiritual walk with God and within the church where we say crazy things like, that's elementary. We need to be working on who the sea beast is in Revelation. I don't need these lessons about faith. Yeah, you do. Every day. Because I don't care who the sea beast is in Revelation if I don't have enough faith to get through the next storm. Okay? Jesus talks about things that are the weightier matters of the law. Let's understand love and mercy and grace and kindness and faith. Let's understand those. Why? Because we've got to use those all the time. We've got to use those all the time. And if I'm not prepared there, and I'm trying to chase some rabbit of some obscure passage, and I think that's the key to enlightenment, I've missed the boat. 
I've completely misunderstood what's important and what's not. And what's important is that I got enough faith to get through. The second part of this is we skip down to verse 14. Notice what he says here. All the bad stuff, right? There's terrible things going on. These guys are awful. They're terrible. They're going to come wipe it out. Their destruction is all they have planned. They built these cities on blood of others. Notice what he snuck in there on us on verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Anybody else, when I read through that, thought that that verse sounded out of place? What's he talking about? The knowledge and the glory of God. He's talking about these scumbags. What? How's that helping? Again, when we focus on the final outcome, <clears throat> here's what we know. Remember when the Babylonians came in and they started wiping everything out? They destroyed the temple completely. They, they were taking the people and killing them, picking up women and children and dashing their heads against rocks and trees on horses as they came through. But what else happened there? What happened in Daniel chapter 1? These same guys took Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the other choice children, and where'd they go? They went to Babylon. Now, did they go to Babylon and pack themselves in a hole and remain silent? Or did they go to Babylon and influence the kings and leaders? Remember that Daniel and these young guys walked through the fiery furnace and stopped the mouths of lions and influenced the entire kingdom. Why do you think Nebuchadnezzar, or not Nebuchadnezzar, Nehemiah and Ezra were able to go home to rebuild? It was because Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego paved the way. And Nehemiah was a servant of the king and paved the way. And they had influence. And the knowledge of God stood up in the midst of all of the idolatry that they believed in. They saw the one true God and how he acted. Yes, there were terrible things that were happening. But God said this terrible thing isn't the end. Because I'm going to influence these same guys. Now it's up for debate as you read the book of Daniel. What happened at the end of Nebuchadnezzar's life. But there is no doubt that Nebuchadnezzar knew who God was. No doubt. Now whether Nebuchadnezzar ever fully repented and worshipped God. That's up for debate. But there is no doubt with what he went through that he didn't know who God was. That the knowledge of God was not prevalent throughout the Babylonian Empire. That the knowledge of what these young men did was not done in a corner, but was on display for all to see. You see, that's what we do when we panic, is we focus on the here and now. I don't know how I'm going to get through the next 10 minutes, so I have trouble seeing the outcome. The outcome. I have trouble seeing what good could come of this. I have trouble understanding why any of this is going to be any better. Because I'm stuck right here. And, and I don't know what this is. If this is a sign of the times, our current society, the fact that we've got social media where people can say anything they want without thinking about it, or what. But I've noticed a lot 
of what I see is people thinking that they're the only ones that have ever been through anything. Y'all have seen that on social media and hear people talking about it? You've got the young parents that are up all night with the kids because they're sick and got to get up and go to work the next day. And the post is, how did anybody ever get through that? Like they're the only people that have ever had kids. Right? And, and I look around this auditorium and I see lots of families with young kids and I see lots of families with older kids. You know what? Those older kids used to be babies. And I see people in here that have suffered tremendous loss. And I see others that will. But do you know what? We're not the only one that's ever been through it. Literally, billions of other people have been through exactly what you've been through. Does that make it any easier? No. But I want you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're not going to take the time to read this whole chapter, but I'm going to grab a few things here for you, and I want you to mark 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And what I want you to mark it for is because I want you to understand that God is the God of all comfort, first and foremost. And secondly, one of the things that Paul writes when he's writing to the church at Corinth, remember these guys hate him and don't even think he's a real apostle and don't think he really has authority, and he's going to go on to, to defend that later. But the second thing that I want you to notice is that Paul writes that he suffered through all that he went through, he suffered in order that he can help others that suffer. So when we talk about the storms, when we talk about suffering, part of the reason why you and I suffer it's because when we come through it, we're there to help other people that have suffered. How about that? Because we're going to lose people that we love and we care about from this life. And it's hard. But when we do, and when we begin to put our lives back together, we do that partially because other people have been through it and they help us. And then when we get there, we got to share that same knowledge with somebody that's getting ready to go through it. To share the knowledge that you will overcome this. And while today is terrible, there'll come a day when it's not as bad. And we can share things like the fact that some of these losses we have, the pain will never go away but it will become less acute. It's not going to hurt as bad. Still going to hurt. Still going to think about them. Still going to miss them. But it's not as bad. And we can focus on the good that we had and focus on their faith and the fact that they got home and they overcame in the end. And we can say the same thing that David wrote. There's nothing more I can do about them in this life. They're gone. But I can live a life to where I can be with them again. We can understand the end, the beginning. And friends, that's the definition of wisdom. Wisdom is not about the facts that we collect. Wisdom is about knowing the end at the beginning. And knowing that while I may not get through this today, there will come a day that I will. It doesn't rain forever. At some point, the sunshine's going to come back out. At some point, I can start to put one foot in front of the other. 
And the biggest lesson that we learn through tragedy and we learn through difficulties is that it's okay to hurt. You know why I know it's okay to hurt? Because Jesus did. Sometimes we treat Jesus like he's Superman or something. Like he's some mythical being and creature creature that never really existed and never really felt like we did. That's wrong. The Hebrew writer says we have a sympathetic high priest that went through everything that you and I went through. And Jesus wept at the death of Lazarus. Now, one of the things that's fascinating about Jesus weeping through the death of Lazarus is he knew he was getting ready to bring him back to life, didn't he? Jesus knew full what was going to happen. But he wept at the loss, and he wept at the fact of how all of those people were going to feel when he died in a few days. And he knew how hard it was going to be for him. And he knew that his disciples were going to scatter. And he knew there was going to be crisis of faith. And he knew there was going to be heartache. And he knew there was going to be pain. And he wept for what was going to happen. And that was okay. Friends, we get these crazy ideas in our mind that we can't hurt, or we shouldn't hurt, or we should just feel better, or we should just suck it up, or all all kinds of other nonsense. When we need to understand there's a time to weep. There's a time to mourn. There's a time to hurt. And then there's a time to heal. But you can't heal until you hurt first. And if we don't experience the emotion and the pain of what's in front of us, we can't heal. When we lock that and don't deal with it and pretend it didn't happen and all kinds of other goofy things that we try to do, tough enough, instead of dealing with the hurt, experiencing it, feeling it, and then growing from it. Until we can do that, we can't get better. But focusing on the final outcome is allowing ourselves to deal with the trauma and the pain. Saying, I'll be better tomorrow, but it ain't today. One of these days it'll be better, but it's not today. We've got to focus on that final outcome. The other important part about focusing on that final outcome is that we've got to understand that this life isn't the final outcome. I think that's why the pain is so acute and so difficult, is that when we lose people that we love here, they're gone from here. But if they're faithful, they've gone to a better place. And if given the choice, none of them would come back. Paul writes in Philippians, he says, I'm torn between the two. For me to go on to be with Christ is far better. Do you believe that? Do you believe that for us to go on to be with Christ is far better than our current situation? But what does he say right behind that? But I know being here is good for you. That's the duality of focusing on the final outcome. I want to go home because it's better than here. But if I'm here, I'm here to help. But that's still better. 
and those that we love, if we prepare them for better, then we weep that they're not with us, but we are overjoyed that they're someplace better. The final outcome is what we're all working towards, friends. We're all just trying to get back home. We're all just trying to get to that point where there is no more sorrow and pain and sadness and tears and we're in the presence of God. That's what we want, but more importantly, that's what God wants. Have you ever sat and contemplated that deeply one day? And wondered with everything going on, what does God want? If you haven't, I encourage you to do it. And when you think about what God wants, I want you to think about what God created. Because that's what he wants. God created Eden. And what was Eden? A place where he could walk with us and talk with us, right? Where he could dwell with man. Now, I don't know how long Eden lasted, right? We sometimes read the first three chapters of the book of Genesis as if it was a week. That could have been 100 years. Could have been 1,000 years. I don't know how long it happened, but I know that's what God wants because that's what God created. And when sin separated man from God, what's God done ever since? Tried to get us back, right? And he created the plan by which we could get back. And from Genesis chapter 3, we knew that Jesus was going to be the answer. And that he would overcome death by living a perfect life. And at the end, he would pay for all the sins of all time for all of mankind. Why? So we could go back to eat. That we could walk with him and talk with him because that's what God wants. Now if that's what God wants, and that's what God's been working on since the foundation of time, how then should we react? Shouldn't we know that God wants us and God loves us and God's going to do everything in his power to make sure we have every opportunity to get there? See, that's the God we serve. He's not looking to kick any of us out. He's looking to grab as many as he can. That's the end. That's the outcome. And if he wants so badly for us to get there, isn't he going to provide everything that we need in order to get there? And when the storms come, isn't there going to be a reasonable shelter so that we can get through them? See, friends, if we just stop and think about it for a little bit, instead of focusing so much on what's wrong, we can see what's right. And that helps us get there. Because the third answer here in our trinity of positivity is that he's still in control. When we slide down to verse 20, it said, God is in his holy temple. God's still in control. Regardless of what it looks like at the time, regardless of what we can understand, 
regardless of what we can see, that fact is self-evident that God is still in control. And so if God is still in control, and I don't understand what's going on, what should my response be? It should be to step back and say, God, go on here. This is yours. Now, for a guy like me, who's type A personality, ADD, and a fixer, that's the hardest thing. This is the hardest thing for me to get my hands around. Because I want to fix. But I've got to understand, it's not my place to fix. And I'm not capable of it. The most peaceful thing we'll come to in life, friends, is understanding when certain things are above our pay grade. As much as I want to, this ain't me. I can give all of this to God because he's in control and he knows what's going on. Because I don't have to. I want to. But quite frankly, I'm just not equipped. Any of us that has a loved one that's facing a surgery, we want to do everything we can for them. I don't know if we have any neurosurgeons in here this morning. But let's say somebody that you love was facing brain surgery. And they said, Adam, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give you the forceps. Go in there and knock it out. You want to do that? No matter how much you love them, no matter how much you care about them, do you want to go in and start playing with things that you don't understand? I don't either. As much as I appreciate the offer, boys, let's leave this to the experts. I don't really want the guy that's even first out of med school. I mean, the guy that's been running this place for a long time. The one that's in charge. That's seen this happen 100,000 times. But yet, when it comes to spiritual things, why don't we do the same thing with God? Instead, what we're doing is we're rushing into the ER and we're trying to hack away instead of saying, God, this one's yours. I'll do what I can do over here. But it's time for you to do what you do. And maybe I don't understand the outcome. Many of us have been in those pre-op rooms where they're explaining what they're getting ready to do to your loved one. And they walk you through it like you understand anything about it. Anybody ever been there? I remember being there with Dad and he's like, Dad had had a stroke. Hey guys, this is what we're going to do. We're going to tie this back together. We're going to do this. Okay. I don't know what any of that means. I'm, I feel like I'm a fairly intelligent guy. I can research it. I can look it up online. I can see the diagrams. But actually executing any of this, I got nothing. But yet, when it comes to these spiritual matters, when it comes to these storms, we need to have faith in the only one that can calm it. We talked about it in Bible class this morning. About Peter stepping out on the water. Remember Jesus is walking on the water. He's walking back toward the boat. And Peter, like many of us, I want to do this too. 
And he gets out on the water. And he does the same thing that you and I do. Takes his eyes off Jesus and starts looking at the problems. There's winds and there's waves and there's this and there's that. And what happens to Peter instantly? He starts sinking. Because he forgot what was important. He forgot who was in control. He forgot who had power over the winds and the waves and the sea and the reason why he was standing on top of the water in the first place. We've got to understand that God is in control and we have no reason for fear. We have no reason for anxiety. Our prayer, our hope, our direction has to be that God, this is yours. And I'm going to do what I can do to fill that faith barrel back up to where I can understand and believe that even more. So what's our lessons today? Our lessons today to take away from this is one, got to have that faith bucket. Got to keep it full. And understand that's the only way we're going to overcome Secondly, we've got to focus on the final outcome regardless of the brutal facts and circumstances that we're going through. And third, we've got to know that God is in control. I want to leave you with one last story. In 1952, a lady by the name of Florence Chadwick, who had swam the English Channel several times, she decides what she wants to do is swim from Catalina Island back to the coast of California. This is a several mile trip, longer than she had swam before. But she had trained and she was ready. The morning of the swim, she gets out of the boat, but the waters are choppy and the fog is thick. And as soon as she hits this cold water, the fog's so thick she can't even see the boats that were with her recording the journey. And she began to swim for the shore. Fifteen hours into the swim, she can't see where she's going. And she starts to call out to the boats that she can't make it. Her mother, who's in one of the boats, says, I can see the shore. Keep swimming, you're just a little ways away. So she swam on for another few minutes and then became physically, emotionally, and mentally exhausted and sank. So they came in with the winches and they pulled her back out onto the boat and they dried her off and calmed her down and the wind blew and the fog lifted. And she was half a mile from the shore. The next day at the press conference, they asked her about being so close and how she felt. And she told them without blinking, if I could have just seen the shoreline, I would have been able to make it. Even though I was exhausted, if I could have just fixed my eyes on the shore, I would have made that last half mile. And friends, I think about that story. And I think about how many of us are so close to the shore. But because the storms came and the fog's there, 
We can't see it. We've got to focus our attention on that shoreline of getting home. And the steps to do that are really simple. It's all about faith. It's all about knowing our God, knowing who he is from the very beginning, knowing what he's done from the very beginning. And the more we read that, the more we understand that, the more we take that to heart, that begins to develop into trust and love. And that trust and love allows us to embrace Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. Our light, the lamp to our feet, our path and our God way home. That allows us to get rid of everything else because the rest of it don't matter. To die with him, to be raised with him, to have all of our sins washed away, and to be selfless because we think about all those that have been there before us and all those who will come after and all those who are hurting and are suffering because we've hurt and we've suffered. And if we'll embrace that and become more and more selfless, this cycle keeps going. Our faith gets stronger. Our barrel gets deeper. We're able to do even more. And we're able to keep the perspective that we need. That regardless of the storms, we'll have a peace that surpasses all understanding. And that peace is that God's still in control. Especially when I can't see him. Friends, wherever you are this morning, whatever has happened to steal your peace, if you're not a child of God, let's start you down that path first. But if you are a child of God, but the storms of life have taken you over, let's get you plugged back in. The family that's here is ready to carry you if you can't carry yourself. We're ready to suffer with you, beside you, because one day we're going to need you to carry us too. So wherever you are and however we can help, come forward now as we stand and as we sing.